Well, we have come to the point in Luke's gospel where Jesus is now placed upon the cross. Uh, he has set his face towards this moment. We have been building towards this moment for a long time. Uh, all throughout the Gospel of Luke, really, this is why he came. Jesus has declared the necessity of what is about to take place, and now he physically, actually endures it. The hour has now arrived. And today we're going to cover, as so we continue in chapter 23, verses 26 to 43, uh, which means we're actually going to stop just short of his death, and we will cover that next time. Uh, but we are covering his final journey to the cross when he is then placed upon it and all of his interactions that go on during this time. At least all of the ones that Luke gives us. Uh, and as I read through this uh, text that we're going through today, uh, I cannot help but think about Paul's words from Philippians chapter 2. Paul's words when he's exhorting the believers there to not look to your own interests but also to the interests of others. Uh, to, to think of others ahead of yourselves, and then he presents to them Christ. He reminds them of the gospel. He reminds them of the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ and how it was that he did not uh, act in his own interest, but rather he took on a human form, came as a servant, uh, came to serve human beings. Uh, and he not only did he take on a human form as we celebrate during this season of Christmas, uh, but he also became obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that's precisely where it is we are at. And the fact is, there is just no greater act of humility. There's no greater model of humility that you can possibly look to, though you would search out the entire universe, all the writings of men. Nothing will compare to this humility that we see in the Lord Jesus as he goes to the cross. And as Luke presents to us these final hours of the Lord before his death, this concern that Jesus has for others, this concern for his church, for other people, is on full display. It's everywhere, and I would submit to you that it's remarkable. Uh, these are maybe common uh, words that we're familiar with, and yet it is amazing, and I hope and trust that as we look at it, uh, you'll see it with fresh eyes that you'll view this with eyes of faith, that you will see it for the greatness that it is. That if you would love the Lord more, if you would desire to cling to Him more, to appreciate Him more, to love Him more, that you would see how great He is in these verses that we're looking at today. So I will invite you to read with me Luke 23 and starting in verse 26. The Word of God says this, And as they led Him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him 
and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Again, Christ's concern for others, his service of others is all over this passage. Our outline, if you're looking at an ESV, you see three major paragraphs in this section. We're basically following that, uh, covering those paragraphs in different sections. And the first thing we see is Christ's concern for others is evident, is seen in his solemn warning that he gives. In the solemn warning that he gives. This is in verses 26 to 31. A warning, uh, we can view that sometimes as a negative thing uh, or as an annoying thing. Uh, you've been warned. Uh, kids want to roll their eyes when dad warns them. Officer gives you a warning. You roll your eyes a little bit. What a hassle this is. But in fact, Warnings can be a very loving, very helpful reality, very good thing. Warnings often alert us to the fact that there is danger ahead so that we might avoid that danger. So if you see a warning that says danger, bridge out, uh, you would appreciate such a warning and you would stop and you would not keep going down the road lest you come into serious harm. We want those kinds of warnings. Those are good ones. And Jesus gives us such a warning in verses 26 to 31. In verse 26, we see Jesus is led away after Pilate has handed him over to be crucified. And we're told that Simon of Cyrene, this man he's seized, he's grabbed, he's laid hold of, and he's made to carry Jesus' cross behind Jesus on his way to the place of execution. This would be that horizontal beam that would then get fixed to the vertical beam and form the cross. But Jesus, evidently, he's too weakened to be able to carry this. It was common for the thief or whoever's going to die to carry this out. But we've seen he's been beaten uh, many times, struck many times, and, uh, and, and he, he's had a night of turmoil, sweating blood and so on. And he's unable physically to carry this. And so they seize this man, Simon. We don't know a lot about Simon, except that he's from Cyrene. Uh, presumably, most think he, he probably was a disciple or certainly became one. Uh, that might have been why they seized him. Perhaps they knew and recognized this is one of his followers, so they make him carry the cross. Uh, Mark tells us uh, that this is the father of Alexander and Rufus. So presumably, uh, the, the people that Mark is writing his gospel to, they know who Simon's children are. So we can infer some things from that. Probably they were likewise Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Cyrene is a city from North Africa. It is mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. Um, it had a large Jewish uh, population during the first century. Uh, there were folks from Cyrene gathered on the day of Pentecost who would have heard uh, Peter preach. Stephen's attackers later on included some men from Cyrene. Also, there were men from Cyrene who ended up in Antioch, which had become a significant center, preaching the gospel there in Acts chapter 11. So Simon here is made to carry the cross, and it's in many ways a good visual depiction of what Jesus has told disciples elsewhere we are to do, to pick up our cross daily and follow him. Here, Simon is given this cross, and he is made to follow after the Lord Jesus to the place where they would crucify him. And then in verse 27, Luke begins telling us about this exchange he has with these, this group of women. Luke alone tells us about this part of the, the trip, the journey from Jerusalem to the place where he's crucified. He tells us that there was now a multitude of people that were following after Jesus. So this the group is, seems to be growing. More and more people are gathering to check this out, to see this spectacle. And among them is this group of women who he says were mourning and lamenting for him. There's disagreement uh, amongst um, commentators, believers on who these women are exactly, how sincere are they. Some would say they're probably disciples of Jesus, very sincere in this. Uh, others would say uh, may maybe not, maybe just, some would even go so far as to say they might have been paid mourners. That was sometimes a thing back then. You would pay people to mourn, to have this ritual. Uh, that seems a little elaborate for this sort of cobbled together uh, plan at the end here uh, where they have just arrested Jesus sort of almost last minute and, uh, and, and, and very quickly have moved through this condemnation of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is going to mention in verse 49 another group of women, uh, but this is a different group. There he talks about women who were from Galilee that were clearly his disciples. They came down. Uh, these women here in the section we're looking at today, they're, they're referred to as daughters of Jerusalem. That phrase is used, daughters of Jerusalem or daughters of Zion, many times throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it is in pleasant circumstances. Sometimes it is in context of judgment. So just even that phrase doesn't tell us if, Jesus, if this is a stern rebuke for these ladies or if this is a, a, love, a loving warning of, of caution for these women who, who believe in him. I would just say, I don't think it's important to figure out the level of their sincerity. Not, it's not nearly as important to figure that out as it is to just hear what it is that Jesus says to them. He says to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Think about that for a second. Do not weep for me. Is it not appropriate at this point to weep for Jesus Consider how egregious this all is. Shouldn't he be pitied? How brutal and horrific this act. Wouldn't he be worthy of these women to weep over him? And yet he says here, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And then in verse 29, he begins to give reason why they should weep for themselves and their children. He says, For behold... The days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? 
What Jesus is saying here is that these women should not pity him, but rather they should pity themselves and their offspring because judgment is coming to Jerusalem. That's what he's saying here. He's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem that is going to come upon this city, which he has outlined back in chapter 21, if you remember, which was just a couple days previous to these events. It was a long time ago in our world when we covered those on a Sunday, but not so for Jesus. He has described, he has taught about this uh, this destruction that is coming. He has prophesied about it. That is what he is referring to here. He's saying, weep for yourselves because this judgment that is coming. And the effects are always worse for women, particularly that are bearing children, that are pregnant or that have little ones, women who are nursing. And so he says that in that day when judgment comes, it will suddenly be a blessing to be barren because you won't have to watch as the child suffers. Ordinarily, being barren is not good. It would be considered, people might even think you're cursed of God if you did not have a child. But Jesus says on that day, it will actually be a blessing because it's going to be rough. And he goes on at that time, it's going to be so bad, they're going to want the mountains to fall on them, to end it. Verse 30 says that. He's quoting there from Hosea chapter 10 and verse 8, where God spoke of, it spoke of judgment that God was going to bring on Israel, on the northern kingdom of Israel, and on the city of Samaria. So Jesus quotes Hosea 10. He's reminding them, he's showing them that these people are not unlike these former people who had no time for God, who would not listen to his word or to his prophets. They're repeating the same thing again as judgment fell on Israel back then, and then eventually Jerusalem back then when they went away into exile. So again, rejection of God, and now his Messiah will lead to judgment. And then there's this proverbial statement in verse 31 making a similar point. We talked about green wood and then this dry wood. We know, you know, green wood is fresh wood. It does not burn as easily as dry wood does, which goes up in flames. What he's saying there is if God permits the Romans to be an agent of God's wrath upon his own son, who is himself sinless, though he's bearing sins of others, and they're willing to treat him in such a horrific manner, how much more brutal is it going to be when God unleashes the Romans upon Jerusalem as agents of his judgment? upon those who are actually guilty of great evil, those who are, in fact, dry wood. And, of course, it was harsh. We know Romans, uh, the Romans came in, in in 70 A.D. and put down a rebellion in Jerusalem. Uh, there's sources, Josephus and others, that describe it. It was brutal. These words are, are heavy from Jesus. These words are harsh. But it is a kind warning from Jesus. They are kind words from him. And here's what this does as he says these words. Jesus is here refocusing these ladies, and by extension us, you and me, about what really ought to be mourned as we consider Jesus being crucified. It is not just the fact that Jesus was innocent of charges and he's being badly treated. He is innocent. He is badly treated, 
But he says he's, we're not to pity him for that. Rather, he's telling us to look past this and see what is really going on here. He's telling these women the Messiah is being rejected here. And this is because of the sinfulness of man. And this rejection of God, this rejection of his word, this rejection of his provision and his Messiah necessarily brings judgment. And this is what is to be mourned. He's saying, mourn for yourselves and for your children. He's saying to wake up and to repent of your sin, to get right with the Lord. Don't weep for me, but weep for you. Again, we saw back in chapter 21, as we looked at the destruction of Jerusalem, we saw that it serves as a type, a, a shadow, a foreshadow of the final judgment that will come upon all sinners. Which again, I think means Jesus' warning here to these women it is also a warning for all of mankind, including you and I. In fact, Revelation 6.16 describes the final judgment. I think he's describing the final judgment in Revelation 6. But he uses these terms. He speaks of great ones there asking and calling for the mountains to fall on them because of the wrath of the Lamb. They would rather that just wipe me out, be done with it, rather than face the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is saying, don't weep for me, but weep for the judgment that is coming. And so this is a service to these ladies. It is a service to you and I. As it reminds us of the real tragedy at work in the crucifixion here. And it is sin. This is not just a sad case of injustice. It is a cosmic tragedy that broadcasts mankind's rebellion against God. And is evidence of the judgment that we deserve. Matthew Henry says this. When with an eye of faith we behold Christ crucified. We ought to weep. Not for him. But for ourselves. Because sinful man is putting Christ on this cross. And Christ is on this cross bearing the sins of believers. All of it is a reminder of sin. And Jesus says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. But of course, his instruction to weep is not merely just to feel bad. It's that they should then flee from the judgment to come. Again, if you think back to chapter 21, Jesus was instructing about the coming fall of Jerusalem. Jesus told his disciples that when they saw armies surrounding Jerusalem... They should get out of Dodge. They should leave. Uh, we know again from Josephus and others when, uh, when the armies of Rome did surround Jerusalem, there were false prophets within the city saying, stay, everything will be fine, we will be delivered. But that's not the instructions Jesus gave his people. He said, it's going to fall because, I mean, look at what they're doing to the Messiah, the rejection of God. Judgment is coming. Get out. Stay out. If you're out, do not come in. Stay out. And as a point of Historical fact, many Christians did flee Jerusalem in that day, and they were saved. They were spared from facing this judgment within the city of Jerusalem. Now, these ladies, I don't know if they were part of that group. It would have been yet 40 years or so from this point when Jesus said this and was being crucified. They may have been part of that group that left. Their family may have been. We don't know for sure. But they could have. They could have been part of that group if they grasped Jesus' warning here and his meaning here and believed it and took it to heart. And likewise, 
for anyone now, there's still time to flee the wrath to come. Rebellion against God, sin against the Almighty, rejection of Christ, this can only end in judgment. And yet here is a warning, and it is a warning that is in love because there is a refuge. There is forgiveness. There is grace. And even as Jesus is warning these women here, he is on his way to make the provision that will allow for these women, for others, to be forgiven. Jesus could have just remained silent here and pressed on while these women lamented, but instead he speaks to them. Though he's anguished, though he's dealing with all this this, this reality of the wrath of God that is going to be poured out upon him for sin, the physical pain as he experienced being truly man, he stops and he issues this solemn warning to these ladies. It is a kindness, it is a loving act, even as he undergoes all this hostility. Christ's concern for others seen in this warning. Christ's concern for others is also seen here in contrast to the gross ignorance that we find of the others around him. Jesus, in verse 32, is taken away uh, along with two other criminals. These are evildoers. These are wicked men. Uh, We'll find out later. One of them will say they deserve what they're getting. Mentioned the other week, likely, I think, probably part of the insurrection that Barabbas was part of led away to be put to death. In verse 33, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. It's amazing here with what restraint this is described. Did you notice, you just read over it, there they were crucified. A whole host of horrors flies under that statement. In many ways, so understated. There's no violent, graphic description of the event. I remember when that movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out, and watching it and, and being shocked in many ways by it. And while that may be an accurate description of what happened, interestingly, uh, that's not how the gospel, that's not the thing the, that the gospel writers are trying to, to get home. They simply say, there they were crucified. They don't go into the graphic details of, of all that happened and what it looked like and all the, you know, they don't go into the gory details. There they were crucified. Jesus is nailed to this wood. He's hung up on this cross. He's numbered here with these transgressors. The location there is called the place of the skull. Um, In Aramaic, it's called Gotha. That comes across in Latin as Calvary. That's where that word comes from, if you're wondering. uh, This location, um, we don't actually know precisely where it was. There's really two locations where people think it was maybe one or the other. Uh, One is more historic than the other, but ultimately we're not exactly sure. We know that this was just outside of, of Jerusalem proper at the time. We don't even know for sure why it's called the skull. 
Uh, you've probably heard one of the most common reasonings is that the place itself looked like a skull in certain light. You've maybe seen some pictures where it's grainy, but it, yeah, maybe it kind of looks like a skull. Um, that's actually a much later uh, tradition, understanding of, of where this, maybe this, this word came from, this name, uh, the skull came from. It's a very recent theory. Uh, early theories include the idea from Jerome in the 4th century, the 5th century, uh, that it was because there were skulls everywhere from executions. We don't have any other evidence for that. Uh, Origen, even earlier than Jerome, said that there was a pre-Christian tradition saying that they had that name because it's supposedly where Adam's skull was buried. Of course, we obviously can't verify that either. And others think it was just symbolic. This name was symbolic because it was the place of execution. Regardless of exactly why it's called this, it was clearly notorious as it was the execution site for criminals. That the Lord would end up at a place called the skull to be crucified is obviously horrific. And as Jesus is on this cross, Luke describes more of what took place. Verse 34, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There is also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. There is an appalling amount of ignorance on display here in these verses. Jesus says as much when he prays for them. Now we'll come back to his prayer for forgiveness in a moment, but he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. They do not understand really what's going on here. These are people blinded by their sinfulness and they do not get it. This ignorance is everywhere here. Uh, the soldiers, it's kind of, a, it seems a sport or a game to them. They divide or they cast lots for Jesus' garments to see who's going to take this home. This is mentioned by Luke and others. It is fulfillment of what was read earlier in our service from Psalm 22 and specifically verse 18. Now David writes that Psalm 22 as a prophet. Now whatever situation he happened to be in, whatever relevance that Psalm might have to him, it very clearly is a prophecy being fulfilled here in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, the greater David. The Messiah's sufferings are indeed in accordance with the scriptures. And the mockery here progresses. Verse 35 mentions the crowd, which interestingly they are standing by, seemingly portrayed as observers. But then Luke zooms in on the rulers specifically, saying that they scoffed at him. That word has the idea of turning up your nose, meaning they're not just saying some things about him. Their faces are contorted. They're, they're angry. If you get your nose turned up, you have, that involves your whole face getting involved. They're furious with him. They're spewing vile hatred toward him as they lash him with their tongues. It's anger. It's despising of the Lord and of God himself. And in verse 36, the soldiers are in on the act as well. And notice... The, the nature of this, the character of this, what is being said of Jesus. 
Verse 35, the rulers, they say, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. Also, interestingly, something that Psalm 22 uh, said would happen. Uh, Verse 37, the soldiers, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 39, the criminal, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Over and over again, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself if you're this person. They all have this similar understanding. If Jesus was in fact a great king of the Jews, if he was in fact the Messiah, the Christ of God, he would not be hanging on this tree. He would not be in this situation. He would be the one on the other side, not as vanquished foe, but the one who would be conquering these Romans. And if anything, he'd be the one placing them on this tree. But it's the other way around. Here he is, cursed of God. He's hanging on the tree. He can't possibly be a great king. Save yourself. Such a view of Christ continues today. A Savior who's crucified, that's weak, that looks pathetic, it's unimpressive to the natural eye. It's certainly not something you'd want to boast in, at least if you're looking through carnal eyes at what is happening here. And that's precisely what these men do as they heap this abuse over and over again. Save yourself. And yet what is amazing, the thing these ignorant people don't understand and cannot see, is that Jesus here is not acting on his own behalf. He's not acting on his own interests, but has actually come to bear the sins and save all those whom the Father has given him. He came on behalf of others to, in fact, save them and eternally so. They're saying, save yourself, but he's there to save others. Hebrews 9 says, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ's first arrival was not to crush his enemies, but was to put away sin by offering himself spotless and unblemished on their behalf. And they don't see this. Instead, they mock him because he can't save himself, or so they think. And yet he's in the process of saving others. And even as the one criminal says, save yourself and us, Interestingly, ironically, Jesus is in the process of saving others, just not in the earthly way this criminal desires. He just wants down. We must not look upon Christ with carnal eyes. He is the only Savior. He is the King of the Jews but he is also the great king over all the earth. He rules ultimately over all nations. And his resurrection has vindicated him. And he will return one day and manifest his glory to all mankind. And even that passage I referenced earlier from Philippians chapter 2, how does that end? His humility, then his exaltation, and one day every knee will bow. Every knee will acknowledge 
the reality of who Christ is. It will either be as someone who has submitted in this lifetime to Christ Jesus, believed in him, called out to him for grace and mercy, looked away from their own righteousness, looked to the righteousness of Christ, or they, they will acknowledge him then, his name as great, uh, as his children, as forgiven, or they will acknowledge it as a defeated foe. But it will be acknowledged. And yet before that great day, Jesus came to be numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors, as Isaiah tells us. This loving king over all the earth, king of the Jews, king of all nations, came to deal with sin. May we see this with eyes of faith. May you see this for the beauty that it is, with a renewed clarity, loving Christ all the more, despising your own sin all the more, being filled with even greater thankfulness for what this king has done. And this does lead to the third point. Jesus' concern for others is seen in the amazing grace that is extended from the cross. It's amazing, really, and shocking in some ways. If we think about who Jesus is from all eternity, and yet fantastic and fitting, that as Jesus is here paying for the sins of his people, he's dispensing grace while he's hanging there on the cross. In verse 35, he prays, Father, or sorry, verse 34, Father, forgive them, is what he utters as he hangs there. Matthew Henry reminds us that the sin they were now guilty of might justly have been unpardonable. I think that's fair to say. If God had said, you know what, there's no pardon for that. It would be hard to blame God if he said that. But rather than Christ praying, Father, consume them, he says, Father, forgive them. And we see this prayer answered in a number of places, uh, even very quickly after he prays this. It seems in verse 47, which we'll get to next week, the centurion in his recognition that Jesus is innocent comes to faith. And certainly before that, we see it in one of the criminals. Look at verse 40. Sorry, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In Matthew, we're told both criminals started the day mocking in the same way. Both were doing this very thing early on. You wonder how that might be. Um, Mark is helpful in telling us that everything we've read up till now uh, occurs between the hours of nine in the morning and noon. Uh, so this is spread out over three hours. And so somewhere along this way, somewhere during these three hours, this thief who began the day mocking and jeering Jesus and reviling him, eventually somewhere saw his own folly and drew a similar conclusion to that of the centurion. Jesus' prayer takes effect in this criminal. Look at verse 40. 
But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. His gross ignorance is turned aside, and truth comes flooding in. This man is awakened, and he exercises this newfound faith in not many ways he can at this stage, but he does rebuke this, this friend of his, likely, his comrade. He also acknowledges, notice, that he is getting what he deserves. This other guy says, get me down if you are the Christ. I don't deserve this. This isn't right. This guy says, no, we, we deserve this. They're guilty of obviously heinous sins. No more hiding it for this thief. No more thinking he deserves Jesus to get him down. He's guilty. On the other hand, he's come to see that Jesus is not. He has witnessed all that has gone on, all that Jesus has done and said through this ordeal, and he draws the correct conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is innocent. And so amazingly, he turns to him in verse 42 and says, Jesus, remember me, when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Such a simple prayer. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And yet, very profound as well. In humility, he just asks Jesus to remember him. He's not demanding things of Jesus at this point. He's not saying, I'd like to be on your right hand demanding pride of place, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. He clearly has understanding that this is not the end for Jesus, that there is yet a kingdom that Jesus will enter into that he rules over. And the Lord's response is, truly I say to you. Notice the assurance there. Not just sure, not just okay. Truly, this formulaic saying, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here is a man deserving of death by his own admission, experiencing his last gasp, if you will, who is assured of pardon and of entering into Christ's kingdom, entering into paradise. One commentator points out, this man may never have prayed a true prayer in all of his life until this point, and yet here it is answered. Here he is now being welcomed in. In one way, in one sense, this is scandalous. All of these men who are around Jesus, who've lived their lives in their understanding of it, According to the law, at least externally, they've cleaned up the outside of the cup. They look like good citizens. They have not taken part in the insurrection that has led to crucifixion for these two men. They've strived. They've worked really hard. And here they are on the outside. And here is this bad person in his final breaths being assured of his forgiveness, being assured that he will be brought into God's kingdom. He enters into this glory with no merit of his own. It's obvious, it's clear. And this is how we all must come. 
And I wonder, I wonder if his family had given up on him. I wonder if his more pious friends had written him off as a lost cause. He's been a rebel all his days. We don't know. I don't know. But what we do see here is that it's not over until that last breath has been taken. If he can, be, if he can enter in and be welcomed in by Christ and assured of it, though all the vile things that he has done, this is true of anyone in their dying breath. The vilest of sinners can be forgiven, even at the last. This is such a good and wonderful picture of God's grace. Because this man clearly had nothing to offer. Just remember me. He's like the tax collector beating his breast. Jesus mentions paradise. He says, you will be with me today in paradise. It's an interesting word. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, this word paradise is used to describe Eden, the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, 8, when it says the Garden of Eden, the uh, Septuagint uses this word, the paradise of Eden. It is used again in Revelation 2, verse 7, which speaks of what awaits those who believe in the Lord Jesus to the end, where Jesus says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It is depicting heaven as the renewed Eden, the paradise of God in which there is the tree of life even, according to Revelation 2.7. And then it is this that comes down out of the sky at the end of Revelation in chapter 21. It comes down out of the sky upon the earth called the new heavens and new earth, which is the eternal state after the final resurrection. And then in, in Revelation 22, verse 2, right near the end of it all, we're told the tree of life will be there. This is all telling us, instructing us, that the kingdom that Jesus is building is a recovery of what was lost in the Garden of Eden, and then some. It is, in fact, an improvement on what was lost in the Garden of Eden, because in the Garden of Eden it was possible, evidently, for man to sin. But in the new heavens and new earth, in the paradise of God, where the tree of life is, is and will be, sin will be no more. It will be totally and completely defeated. What was lost in Eden is gained and improved eternally in Christ's kingdom. And while the final consummation of paradise remains still yet a future reality, believers who die enter into this paradise upon death as our souls go to be with the Lord until the resurrection of our bodies that will be raised imperishable when the Lord Jesus returns. Today, he says, you will be with me in paradise. The grace that is shown to this criminal is a reminder of what Jesus has said elsewhere. When he said, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. And he goes on then also to say, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Those vile things that he started the day saying about the Lord Jesus is completely forgiven. And Jesus' prayer, when he says, Father, forgive them, it is the same prayer that Jesus makes for all who trust in him. 
Christ Jesus, the high priest, intercedes for all who are his own. The wonderful promise of the gospel is that Jesus was crucified, buried, and he was raised for sinners. So that all who repent of their sin, who look to Jesus Christ in faith, might be forgiven, might be pardoned, might be graciously granted entrance into paradise. Jesus came as a representative. He came on behalf of all those whom the Father had given to him. And in his final hours here, he continued to act on their behalf. And if you're trusting in him, he continued to act on your behalf. Warning, interceding, granting pardon, working redemption. If you're trusting Christ, this is where your hope lies, in Christ and in him alone. What a kindness of the Lord Jesus. What love he displays. What selfless service. This is your, your Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's not much more to say except to thank you and to give you praise for your grace. Father, thank you that though we are vile, not unlike this thief, we can be forgiven in Christ. Father, I pray that you would cause this to be a great, tremendous comfort and joy for all of your people. Father, may every person here know this salvation. And Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for this act that is for others, that is for us. We thank you for your love in sending him. We thank you for your spirit who has awakened our eyes to see this truth, to believe it. And we pray that he would yet awaken many more. Father, we praise you and thank you. Build us up in this truth, God. Sanctify us as we sit under this truth, your word. Father, we just thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.